the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke. a strong man who can tie people up and bind them, but I am stronger to deliver those who are possessed by the power of the strong man. There is one who is even stronger than he that you ascribe this to. In verse 23, he says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. In other words, he's challenging them. Will you work for me or against me? If you embrace what I'm doing and who I am, you're working for me. If you reject who I am and what I'm doing, you're working against me. A lot of confusion surrounded Jesus as he ministered on earth. Sadly, many couldn't understand why or how he was performing so many incredible miracles. Even now, some people just don't understand who Jesus is. Pastor Gary will ask you today what you believe about him. Do you agree with the religious leaders of Jesus' day? Or do you believe what the Bible tells you about him, that he's the Son of God and the Savior of the world? What you choose to believe about Jesus will impact your relationship with him. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke chapter 11, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. You know, so when we come to the Father, like, okay, he's our Father, and I'm just going to ask him for this. Well, you have to always defer to the will of the Father, too, that he knows what is best for you. And sometimes God is going to say yes, sometimes he's going to say no, sometimes he's going to say not now. And we as his children have to respond in the right way. Rejoice when he says yes, rejoice when he says no, when there's not an answer to prayer the way we wanted it. We have to believe and defer that God always knows best and he always has as my loving father, my best interest at heart. And he's going to do what is right and good for me. And sometimes that means saying no. And sometimes it means saying not right now. The timing isn't right. And we have to defer to him and trust him as our father. Well, as we read on here, verse 14, some of Jesus' critics are going to refer to him really as Satan. They don't want to acknowledge that his power is from God. So how else are they going to answer all the miracles that he's doing? Well, if it's not from God, they're going to attribute it to Satan, which doesn't make sense because it's not even, it defies logic, and Jesus is going to point it out. So verse 14, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him. By asking for a sign from heaven. Okay, so get this. You got two groups. Jesus cast a demon out of this guy. The guy was mute, and the demon was controlling his tongue. And then the guy was set free. He could speak. Crowd was amazed. 
then you have two reactions. There's one group that says, well, he's only doing this by the power of Beelzebub, which is another term for Satan. And you have another group that is testing him. We want to see more signs. If you're really who you say you are, you know, perform for us. Do some more miracles. And Jesus, verse 17, knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. That is a great principle by itself, right? You have to have unity in a home. You can't have division or it'll fall. But verse 18, if Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So now he's going to answer here the first group, the ones who think, well, you're just driving out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And Beelzebub is a combination of a false god that appears in 2 Kings chapter 1 by the name of Baal, hyphen Zebub. And it is a Philistine god, meaning Lord of the Flies. And unfortunately, the Israelites consulted Beelzebub in 1 Kings chapter 1. And it became, by the New Testament time, it became this derogatory term or another term for Satan that they use as a derogatory term about Jesus. But it makes no sense. And Jesus points out their flawed logic because he says, now, let me just figure this out with you guys. You realize that a demon just left this guy and you think that I am operating under the power of Satan to cast a demon out. Sounds kind of counterproductive. I mean, that's like somebody who, you know, works at Chick-fil-A going around killing all the chickens in the world. All right? Doesn't make much sense. You work for Chick-fil-A, you kind of want to sell chicken sandwiches. And you don't want to go around killing all the chickens. That's kind of counterproductive. And Jesus is like, I'm casting out demons. If I were doing it by the power of Satan, isn't that kind of counterproductive? Because I'm, I don't mean, by the way, to equate demons with Chick-fil-A, but... Maybe a poor illustration there, okay? But the idea is, Jesus is like, you know, that makes no sense at all for Satan to be casting out demonic things that are part of his own principalities and powers. Now, notice also, though, that he mentions here in verse 19 that there were some in Jesus' day who were exorcists. There were Jewish exorcists in the day who were casting out demons. But now... What they did was incomplete. He's going to point it out in a little bit here. But that's where in verse 19 he says, well, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? You know, if you're going to say that about me, are you saying that also about some of the other Jewish exorcists who are driving out demons? And then he says, you know, they're going to end up being your judges. He says instead in verse 20, I drive out demons by the finger of God. And if you recognize that, then the kingdom of God has come to you. If you recognize that what I'm doing is by the power of God then the power of God will come to you. You need to embrace this. By the way, that expression, finger of God, first appears in Exodus chapter 8. When God was unleashing a series of ten plagues against the Egyptians because the Israelites were held slaves in Egypt, there were Egyptian magicians. Okay, And I use that term loosely because some of it might have been sleight of hand, but in reality... More of it was probably they tapped into the demonic. And it tells us that when these series of ten plagues were unleashed upon the Egyptians, the first plague was the plague of 
blood. The second plague was the plague of frogs. And it tells us that the Egyptian magicians were able to duplicate those plagues. So the, the Nile is turned to blood, and the Egyptian magicians come along and go, no big deal. They also can turn water into blood. Second plague comes along, the plague of frogs, and they're all over the place, and the Egyptian magicians are like, no big deal, we can do this too. And then frogs are all over the place. But they came to the third plague. The third plague was the plague of lice, King James says, or gnats, NIV says. Bothersome bugs, either way you want to look at it. And uh, when it came to that particular plague, at that point, the Egyptian magicians were not able to replicate it, to duplicate it, and for the ones following as well. So, you know, the power of Satan might be able to counterfeit to a point, but it is very, very limited. It's very limited. And the first time that we see the finger of God is there in Exodus 8, when the magicians realize they can't duplicate plague number three, they say to Pharaoh, we cannot duplicate this because this is by the finger of God. This is by the finger of God. Next time you see that phrase, and only other time, is in Exodus 31, when it talks about how the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God. And now you see it here. And Jesus is basically linking the idea of what he does to the very power and presence of God. That he is God in flesh. The same one who wrote the Ten Commandments is the same one who is now delivering those possessed by demons. And if they would only see that and recognize that, then they would be able to recognize the kingdom of God which has come to them. He adds here in verse 21, when a strong man, that's a reference to Satan, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger, that's the Lord, attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. In other words, Jesus is saying, you think I'm casting out demons by Beelzebub, by the power of Satan. The fact is, that he's limited. He's a strong man who can tie people up and bind them, but I am stronger to deliver those who are possessed by the power of the strong man. There is one who is even stronger than he that you ascribe this to. In verse 23, he says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. In other words, he's challenging them. Will you work for me or against me? If you embrace what I'm doing and who I am, you're working for me. If you reject who I am and what I'm doing, you're working against me. And then he adds here a little bit of demonology, if you will. He gives us some understanding, and this is helpful in understanding a little bit about how demons work. He says in verse 24, When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That's very interesting what he tells us here. What he tells us is, and he's probably referring back to verse 19, where there were Jewish exorcists in the day who were casting out demons. The problem is that what they were doing was incomplete. Because if you sweep the house clean, in other words, if you deliver the body of the demons, but you don't replace the spiritual vacuum now with a relationship with Jesus, 
then that person is more vulnerable than they were to begin with. Because the demon who left will circle around to come back. And if they find the house swept clean, but not a new occupant, a.k.a. the Lord, they will come back with a vengeance seven times more than the first time they possessed that individual. This is very critical to understand because the fact is that demon possession still exists today. There are people who don't know Christ, and I'll qualify and come back to this whole idea of, you know, can Christians be demon possessed? No, I think when you take the full counsel of God's word, a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ who has the Lord within them and the Holy Spirit within them cannot be possessed by demons. Okay, but otherwise, somebody who doesn't have the Lord is an empty vessel. And there's the potential... And I don't think that, you know, it's just like this, you know, like people have to be in fear in the world, like everybody's going to get possessed by a demon. But I think that, that some people do things to open themselves up to demonic possession, whether it's dabbling in the occult, whether it's involved in demonic kinds of things, whether it is, you know, living a life that exposes them to kind of satanic and demonic things, whatever the case may be. But if they open themselves up to and can become possessed by a demon or more, if they are delivered, that's wonderful. But they better get Jesus. Because if they don't, that demon's going to come back with a vengeance. And Jesus says it right here. So he's saying the Jewish exorcists of the day, they might be delivering people, but they, the people who are delivered need a relationship with Jesus Christ who will come in. And then here's the part I wanted to add to reassure us who are believers. Ephesians 1.13 says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And as a believer, you can take that confidence in knowing that as Christ as your Savior, that He is the one who has sealed you with His Holy Spirit. You're not now open to and exposed to demonic possession. Also, here's a great verse, 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. It says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. So it's very important we understand that a life that is yielded to Christ, filled with the Lord, by His Spirit, now you're not going to be uh, vulnerable to that kind of possession. But having said that, Jesus warns, someone can be delivered. But if their life is not, if that emptiness now is not replaced by a personal relationship with Jesus... They are more vulnerable than they were to begin with. Jesus says that demon will come back with seven other spirits and possess that person even worse than before. Verse 27, And as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Which is an admirable thing, you know, to pay honor to Mary. But isn't it interesting that Jesus will not permit her to be called the Blessed Mary? Because his response, he replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You know, when you look at what is called the great Magnificat, when Mary gives praise to God because she has been chosen for the unique role of giving birth to Messiah, she lifts up her praise to the Lord and she says, Praise to the Lord, my Savior. Even Mary acknowledged her need for the Savior. She was chosen for a very unique and wonderful purpose that we should not, you know, minimize. But we should also not 
venerator either and, and glorifier in any way that Jesus says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. The ones who are really blessed are those who hear the word of God and do what it says. Verse 29, he says, as the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation and asked for a miraculous sign. Now he's going back to the second group, remember, that objected. First group was like, hey, you're doing all this by the power of Satan. He just addressed all that. Now he's going to go to the second group that's testing him. Why don't you just show us a sign? Why don't you just do something miraculous? And Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. And then he gives another example. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. And so Jesus is comparing himself to Jonah and the ministry of Jonah and to Solomon and the wisdom of Solomon. And Jesus is saying, one greater than Solomon is here, one greater than Jonah is here. And of course, he's referring to himself. And he's talking about their stubbornness to open up their eyes to see that he is really the Messiah. And again, there's nothing wrong with wanting miracles. There's nothing wrong with hoping that God will do a miraculous thing and signs and wonders, except when the signs and wonders or the miracles you're wanting from God are to convince you that He is who He says He is. If you're seeking those things in order to validate the true character of God, now your motives are wrong. If you simply want Him to display His fullness, Lord, and do your wonderful, miraculous works in my life and in this world, that's one thing. Because you know who he is, and he's capable of doing wonderful, miraculous signs and wonders. But if you're approaching it, as they were, from the standpoint of prove yourself. And I don't believe who you say you are, so I need you to entertain me with some miracles here and prove yourself. Then that's what's wrong here, and that's what he's rebuking here. He says, you're a wicked generation because you asked for a sign. And he says, none will be given you, except first he starts with the sign of Jonah. Now, remember the story of Jonah, okay? And most people know the story of Jonah. But notice here that he says at first, before he mentions it was the preaching of Jonah in verse 32, notice in verse 30, he says, for as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. He gets to the preaching of Jonah later in the text, but at first he says Jonah himself was a sign to the Ninevites. How was Jonah himself a sign to the Ninevites? Because you spend three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish? You know the story, right? Jonah was told by God, go to the Ninevites, preach to the Ninevites. He didn't want to. He didn't like the Ninevites. So he gets on a boat, middle of the Mediterranean Sea. There's a storm caused by God. And, and Jonah admits, the storm is causing me. Throw me overboard. He says to the rest of the sailors, it'll be better for you. They throw him overboard. Gets swallowed by a great fish. Three days, three nights, and a great fish. Okay? The gastric juices of a great fish on the human body... When he pops out, he is bleached white. He doesn't have any hair. There's some actually, there's, there's been one or two rare documented things you can Google about people who have been swallowed by big fish or by whales or whatever. And when they're recovered, they have, their skin has been completely bleached. So you have to picture Jonah walking through Nineveh, white as a ghost, bald as a cue ball. 
And his message was basically seven words. Seven words, I think, in the King James, eight words in the NIV. Basically, when he walked through the streets of Nineveh, when he finally obeyed them, he's like, okay, God, you got my attention. He's walking through the streets of Nineveh. Forty more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's his whole preaching. And by the way, he adds, and I don't like you very much. But I'm doing this because God told me to. Boo! And the Bible says at the end of Jonah, there were 120,000 people who didn't know their left hand from their right hand, meaning children. There were 120,000 children in the city of Nineveh, plus however many adults there were. And they turned. Not only because of Jonah himself, they were probably so shocked at his appearance, but also Jesus mentions because of the preaching of Jonah in verse 32. Eight words and an entire city of hundreds of thousands of people repented. And Jesus says, if hundreds of thousands of people can repent at the preaching of Jonah, eight words, and you, speaking to his own generation, and you will not return, you will not repent at my own preaching, then the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against you. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against you. And then he says, and the queen of the south, referring to the queen of Sheba, recorded in the book of Kings, when she came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, she traveled an estimated 1,300 miles to listen to the wisdom of Solomon, to hear about the God of the Israelites. And Jesus says, you won't even walk across the street to hear the wisdom from me. So the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, will rise up on the judgment day, and she will condemn you. And Jesus just simply is saying to them, one greater than Jonah, one greater than Solomon is here. Why won't you turn? Why won't you repent? Why won't you believe? Therefore, you will be judged. Because people turned and they believed. And a lot less was given to them than what is given to you. Where are you in your relationship with the Lord? What has God done for you? How has He revealed Himself to you? His death on the cross, the ultimate picture of love for us, where God sent His only Son to die for us so that by faith in Him, we might have our sins forgiven. It's a free gift. All we have to do is believe it and receive it. Please, if you're here tonight, don't let the same stubbornness of heart take over your life as took over the people of Jesus' day. He's right there. And they refused to believe and receive Him. And in a similar way, though not here in bodily form, Jesus is here tonight. Open your hearts and receive Him. Because He died for you, rose again, ascended into heaven, and He's coming again. And the Bible says He ever lives to make intercession for us. And one day we will see Him face to face. And on that great day, There's only one answer that can be given as to why we should receive heaven as our eternal reward. And that's because at some point in this lifetime, we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We ask Him to forgive us of our sins and we put our faith and trust in Him. So that one day when you see Him face to face, the only acceptable answer is, Lord, because I accepted you and received you as my Savior. That's the only reason why I should be gaining access and entrance into heaven. Because of what you've done for me. Don't refuse to believe. Don't be stubborn of heart. Believe in the one who died for your sins to set you free. 
We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection and that we were able to dig into the Gospel of Luke together. Did you know you could download our mobile app and take Cornerstone Connection with you anywhere you take your phone? That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website cornerstoneconnection.cc While you're there, you can also learn about the church behind this ministry. We'd love to meet you at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We're meeting weekly in person and online, so please join us for worship and Bible study. You can find all the information you need to connect and get service times at our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc We pray you've been blessed by this teaching today on the life of Jesus. Know that we're praying for you too. Is there anything specific we could lift up to the Lord? Let us know by emailing prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but join us next time to continue studying Luke right here on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know.